Live from Queensland, Australia, it's the podcast that some people all around the world are talking about. Those wonderful people are our lovely listeners, and now you're one of them too. To you, all of our lovely listeners, we say a hearty yeehaw. Can we get a yeehaw from everyone? Yeehaw! Let's get on with the show then. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town and he's gonna see the speaker way bros. Hello lovely listeners and welcome to the first holiday season episode of Speak Way Brav. It's Christmas time, Cooper. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That, that was, one wasn't nice. Yeah, that was that, that wasn't a great way to start Christmas. What a, I mean, yeah. how ironic. I was going for a yeehaw, but, you know. Yeah, no, that was more apt, I think, than... Yeehaw! You can't I, hear I that. maybe also feel like it should have been a ho-ho-ho. Ho-ho-ho! Merry Christmas! Never mind. Maybe not a ho-ho-ho. So, uh, yeah, it's it's December, everybody. It's the festive season. We hope everybody... Um, either has their Christmas tree up or is planning to put their Christmas tree up. You know, we're a few, we're almost a full week into December now. So, you know, you've had a weekend, but you've got another one coming up this time. Um, But regardless of how you are celebrating this holiday, there are many ways to celebrate the end of the year. We hope that you are having a fantastic time. Now, Cooper, you are leading the charge on our main discussion topic today. Yes. So why don't you tell the audience, let's give them a preview of what they can expect to find in the main discussion of today's show. So later in the show, we're going to be talking about the top five barn finds, which I'll just give you a quick sort of synopsis of what a barn find is. Please explain to the audience. Pretty much the vague meaning of a barn find is you have a car and it's sort of gets abandoned in most of the time a barn and then the story goes a bit vague and then someone finds it in that barn. And when they find it, it's kind of like a gift. Yes, which is why we've done it like this. There's a festive inference there. Yes, and I've picked the top five, which a lot of them have not actually been found in a barn. Just a little spoiler. But they still okay. are. They're still classified as barn finds, technically, though. Well, I guess we'll find out um, before we get to the main discussion. And we do have a tell me why for later in the show, which we'll get into. But first, it's top of the show to you. Top of the show to you, lad. Oh, you're a very high voiced. Top of the show Irish. to you, lad. Top of the show to you, lad. Are you doing there, my little friend? I'm a little squirrel with an Irish accent. <laughs> there we go. With Bolton accent, so. Well, you're 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 a bulldog with a Bolton accent. The Bolton bulldog, they call you. <laughs> That's actually. I'm gonna steal that. There you go. Um. So, lovely listeners, uh, we do have a little bit of an announcement. Speak away, bruv, for the next few episodes is going to sound a little bit different and that is because uh well for the next few episodes it's going to sound different and then in the new year it's going to sound a bit different again uh because i am 
leaving out. I'm I'm leaving. I'm You're leaving, leaving Speakaway, bruv. I'm leaving the Big Brother house. <laughs> um, I like that. I know what a reference. But yeah, I'm uh, taking. I've just taken a job uh, in another state. Um, and you not, mean in another country? It's not another country. I'm it's, going to Tasmania. That's that's passports. That's across I a sea. I don't have to use my passport to travel to Tasmania. It's across a sea. I class it as overseas. Well, as you can see. Call me Caleb Cooper. I don't really care. My little brother has had an awful geography education. Call me Caleb Cooper. I don't really no care. No one listening to this is going to know who that is. Clarkson's farm. He thinks 20 miles away is abroad. There you go. Anyway. So yeah, so I'm I'm moving temporarily to Tasmania for the next few weeks in the lead up to Christmas, and then for a few months at the start of next year, uh, I'm going to work down there. So in the meantime, we are going to test doing the podcast remotely. We're going to try out a few different uh, things and a few different solves. We haven't figured out exactly how we're going to manage it yet, but we're just going to see how we go. Uh, so that'll kick in from next week's episode. So next week's filmic, excuse me, next week's filmic feelings will be done from elsewhere, and then I think the ma- next main show after that will probably be the same. But then the one after that, we should be good. But we'll see how we go. Uh, so yeah, that's that's my top of the show, Cooper. Do you have anything that you need to go into? Well, we've Without got going into another half hour Cooper's Automotive Remarks segment. Yes, but it is still Cooper's Automotive Remarks. So, once again, I mean, you're not going to believe this. Uh-huh. We have more news coming out the block family. Right, okay. It seems to be never ending. It's like a theme. Right. Every single episode we're going to talk about the block family, it would seem. Okay. So, actually. What is it this time? Well, first off, the day before this episode goes out. Uh huh. Will be the release of Electricana Two. Oh, fantastic! Go out and watch Electricana Two. Support Ken Block in Ken Block's last, um, Jim Connor Electricana, whatever, whatever we call it, his last special. Yes, and there was a video released on what day would it have been? It was Sunday, maybe. So it's already been released. What? What was the day that we watched the episodes of Monarch Legacy of the Monsters? Was that Sunday? No, that was during the week. It was sometime. Yeah, it was probably during the week. I can't remember the exact date. Anyway, continue. It was during the week. There was a video with Leah Block and the first ever woman in rally rallycross, Michelle Mutan, mm-hmm. who raced the original Audi Quattro. Uh-huh. And she was racing her race car and Leah got to drive the Hoonatron, which is going to be oh, what wow. Ken drives. Right, okay. And they were in San Remo, Italy, uh-huh. up in the hills. Yeah. And they were kind of doing a bit of a video talking about that sort of stuff. And I think what the main objective of that video was, was to mention that Leah is now part of the Audi family and maybe doing some stuff with Audi in the future. Uh-huh. I don't know exactly what. Maybe because she's going into the F1 Academy next year. Yeah. Maybe in 2026 when Audi get their Formula One team going, maybe she'll drive for Audi in the F1. Okay. Maybe she'll do an Electricana in the Hunitron. Yeah. Which is a $12 million prototype, by the way. Right. 
Um, it's really not that clear yet, but yeah, exciting things to come there. Very good. Uh, also just been announced is next year will be the end of the Grand Tour. Ah, oh, yes. Big news. Big news out of the Grand Tour. So a lot of us already knew this was coming and it's quite sad because it means that we will no longer be seeing Clarkson, Hammond and May doing anything. Mm. But at the same time, I mean, they've been doing this for a while because we've really only been getting one or two episodes a year for yep. the last couple of years. Yeah. Since 2019, we've had six episodes of the Grand Tour. Yep. And that's the start of 2019 that we're talking about. Right, gotcha. So they've kind of been phasing it out and, you know, there's, well, I just realised there's no kind of way of saying this, but they are getting old now and they have been doing this for many years. Yeah, they're old men. So they can't really be doing this anymore. Yeah. But then they will still be having their own shows. So it was also announced on the same day filming has started for Clarkson's Farm Series 4. Yeah. And because series three is just f- wrapped up filming. Right. Richard Hammond's workshop series three is being released, I believe, now. And that should get another season. Sure. There's going to be a new Our Man In from James May, uh-huh. which is his travel show. Probably another O'Cook, which is his cook show. Mm-hmm. So we're not seeing the end of these three on television. We're seeing the end of them all together. Yeah. Which within two weeks... Top Gear has been shelved and the Grand Tour is going away next year. Mm. And it's going to be very, very low on uh, automotive entertainment. Well, but no, because really automotive entertainment is YouTube, really. Because how many people sit down and watch live TV down nowadays compared to watch How streaming? many of those, none of those shows except for Top Gear that you've talked about are on live TV? Yeah, sure, but it's still television. People like short stuff, like 20 minutes. Not necessarily. Well, that's what a lot of people think. Well, as someone who works in long-form content, I disagree with that. Yeah, but that's also, this is automotive I'm talking about mainly. Considering yeah, and people still sit down for five hours in front of the F1. To watch cars go around the same circuit 75 times. Yes, okay. So I, I get what you're saying, but I think that that's just generally like people are looking for a variety of content to fit into their pre-existing time economy. You know, people want for when they're just sitting on the train or when they're, you know, it's late at night and they don't want to start series. They'll watch a few videos on YouTube that will last the same length as a series, but because they're short videos and they could theoretically stop them at any time, the time economy feels right. But I think that's more what it is as opposed to people are moving away from TV and streamed content. Well, I mean, we're still going to have wheeler dealers, Sure. But the difference with Wheel and Dealers is that Top Gear and Grand Tour are general entertainment. Yeah. They're made to be, and they've said Accessible. this before, they've made, well, they're made to be 
for people like you who aren't really car nerds like me, who don't really know this sort of stuff. Yeah, accessible. They're meant to be watchable for you. Yeah, accessible. Whereas wheeler dealers, I think, I think it is still because a lot of people do learn from wheel and dealers. Like I won't learn something new every single time I watch an episode. But that's not yeah, but you're that's going proper in with a car established interest. Exactly. Yeah. So really we're not gonna have much more of that. So that's really all I have to say in this automotive remarks section. That is Cooper's automotive remarks. So the main discussion, Cooper, that you wanted to go in, we needed to find something that was Christmassy, but it's early in the season. We don't want to talk all Christmas just yet. So, of course, Cooper found a, a car-related window. Yes, the next episode will be talking about Christmas carols. Will it? I mean, I'm sure you'd like to do that. I don't know. I, the Christmas carols aren't that interesting. I mean, that's fair. Except for that one that we just heard. If you, uh, We were just listening before to a Christmas carol that was Carol of the Bells, which is a very popular... It's not a carol. It's a Christmas song. It's the... And it was um, fused with the Mandalorian theme song, which is... Which is a great theme song. Yeah, and it was a great little Christmas medley of those two songs fused together. But, Cooper, walk us through the main discussion for today's episode, what you want to talk about. So we're going to be talking about my top five barn fine cars. Now, this is only scratching the surface of cool barn finds. This is what I think are my top five. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, I'd be interested to hear anyone who knows a thing about barn finds, whether you agree with me. But let's get into it with number five. I'm going down from five to one here. Number, number, number five. So this is a car, has a name, and it is referred to as Dewey. Okay. And I'll come into that in a minute because it is the world's first ever Land Rover. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so what year? The story goes, on the 29th of July, 1948, the world's first Land Rover, Series 1 Land Rover, uh-huh. rolled off the production line, the British Leyland production line. Yeah. Because it was owned by British Leyland for many years. Got it. So this was their first car. They made military equipment before that. Yeah. Which is why all early Land Rovers are painted in green. Because that's military colours that they had lying around. Oh, right. Okay. Fun fact for you. And so this car rolled off the production line on the 29th of July, 1948. And was supposed to be given to the king at the time. The king of England. In 1948. So that was Queen Elizabeth's father. Yes. Got it. So this was supposed to be given to the king... But for whatever reason, it was never given to him. And right. it, it was given to a guy named Professor Ewan McEwan from Newcastle University. Are you serious? I believe that's Ewan his, McEwan. I think that's his name. Wow. From Newcastle University. So that was given to him. Uh-huh. 
and he owned it until the early 70s when he sold it to a farmer in the northeast of England. Uh-huh. And then the story goes a bit vague right. from there on. Got it. Nobody really knows what happens to it until sort of a couple years ago when these people were driving through the northeast of England and people had made it their livelihood to find this car because it is the first ever Land Rover. Yeah. It has cultural significance. Uh-huh. And they were just driving through a town, coming out. There it is, sitting in a field in a various states of disrepair. Got it. And so what had happened is the farmer had actually quite recently died, unfortunately. Uh Oh, that's sad. And the car actually for the whole time, 50 years, it had been either sitting outside or sitting in a barn with no roof in it, on it. Okay. So the car had been sitting outside for all these years. Yep. And the body, you could still see the green paint, but it had rust. It had moss growing on it. Yeah. And the chassis was twisted because of how rusty it was. Okay. And I can show you a photo of that, but yep. it was twisted. And so then when the farmer died they the family wanted to sell it so they got in contact with a land rover specialist julian school i can't pronounce it but it's spelled show me there you are julian schulhefer julian schulhefer the family got in contact with him about doing the, like, getting rid of it. And yep. the town where it was sitting, I can tell you, the town, Northumberland. Northumberland. Yes. And so... All right. And lad, we'll go up to Northumberland, eh? And I'll show you the picture of the world's first ever Land Rover when it was first discovered you make it sound like a dinosaur fossil when it was first discovered i mean that's it oh my gosh it is a fossil like you can see how it's bent right it's covered in dirt and its chassis falling apart well you can see how it's bent like that right yeah bent. it's bent in the middle so that's at a private auction it was put in a private auction how much they sell it for well we don't know that or at least I don't know that. Did they hold out their hand? They probably did hold out their hand. Oh, but it was that's how you want to sell something, eh? But it was sold to Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who is... Related to Daniel. Daniel Ratcliffe, you're a wizard, Daniel. Maybe, but he's the chairman for a company called Ineos, which I believe they have a sponsorship with Mercedes F1. Oh, okay. And they're building a car called the Ineos Grenadier. We've seen a couple of them around here. And what? And the it's Ine- a car with a grenade launcher on it. Fingers crossed. <laughs> no, fingers crossed. it is. Damn a, it! <laughs> it's a recreation of the Land Rover Defender, the late ones. Right. Because he didn't like the way the modern Defenders had gone. There, there's an Ineos Grenadier. Looks like a G-Wagon. Yeah, well, that's kind of what the later Defenders look like. Anyway, 
So he bought this and he wanted to restore it, but keep it sort of looking as it did. And With they wanted the bench chassis and everything. No. So, and then they gave it to Julian Schofer. Sorry. Schofer. Sorry, Julian. I can't. How dare you? I smack you. Beh. Ow. But um, so it was a two-year restoration project and they wanted to save as much of it as possible because it's the first Land Rover. And they actually managed to save that old manky chassis and get it sort of straight. And the body stayed the same. And there's a photo of it. So that's it. Okay, so the bodywork's all scratched up, but the chassis's remarkably a lot better. Yeah, and the reason why I called it Dewey at the start is because it has the number plate JUE477, and that is the number plate that it has worn since it came out the factory. So it is referred to as JUE slash Dewey. So the car gets restored. And you'd think uh-huh. now they'd put it in a museum. Right. Wrong. Where'd they put it? They didn't put it anywhere yet. In another barn? <laughs> That'd be funny. So Jim Ratcliffe wanted to take it on an adventure because he also wanted to prove the capability of Venus. Uh-huh. So what they did was they imported this car to Mongolia right. and drove it across the Gobi Desert. Uh-huh. On an amazing trip, the first ever Land Rover, all beaten up and scratched, drove all the way across the Gobi Desert. It never had a fault. It ran perfectly wow. across the de- the Gobi Desert. And it was remarkable. Cause, wow. And that's a 40s vehicle, may I add, that's doing that. Yeah. So, and I believe JUE is now in a museum. Well, but see, 40s vehicles could do that. Yeah, they could. Because the problem with vehicles and Modern all day. other kinds of tech in in this day and age actually has nothing to do with, like, the actual quality of it. It's the fact that they've got built-in, um, not redundancy, they've got built-in... Gadgets. No. What I'm trying to say is basically they build them to fall apart quicker so that you have to update. Yeah. Well, not the Ineos because the Ineos... Actually, mm. f- well, this Ineos actually followed this this Defender. No, but I'm saying all, ca- all cars, all phones. Yeah, do I see this. what you mean. Because we're in late stage capitalism and it's all about increasing the bottom line. Yes. So JUE, I believe, is now sitting, it's either in a museum or it's still with Sir Jim Ratcliffe in private hands. Right. But I don't think it's going to become a daily driver anytime soon. Right. And I don't think they're going to let it rot away like it had gotcha. anytime soon. So we're going to move on to the next car, which is known as... Number, the, number, number four. Which actually on my page, the way the thing is formatted, it's number six. Oh, how'd you do that? It's because I put number five and then I tried to go four, but it wouldn't let me. So, oh, right. But we're still going to go four. And this is known as the Cuban Goldwing. Okay, tell me more. So... 1950s, the world's first ever supercar has been invented. The Mercedes 300 SL Goldwing, which you'll see a photo of an SL Goldwing later. So it was also a race car. It was a race car slash road car. 
And this particular one was being raced in a Cuban championship. Yep. And then in the 50s, I need to remember his name. Fidel Castro. Oh, yes. Fidel came, Castro. Came to power in the Cuban Revolution. Uh-huh. And then the car got stuck in Cuba. It couldn't leave and go back to Europe or America. It got stuck. Gotcha. And then it this race car, this Mercedes race car, which nowadays a regular gold wing's worth at least one million for a bad one. Oh wow. Like okay. they're very expensive, very rare, very desirable cars. Uh-huh. And it was daily driven from then till the eighties. Right. It was daily driven and then it was abandoned in Got it. in a f- field slash sort of junkyard sitting underneath a banana tree. Okay. For nearly 40 years it sat there. Wow. And the first person to discover it was Jeremy Clarkson. Oh, wow. Okay. Back in the 90s, he did a TV show in Cuba uh-huh. where they actually found it, filmed it and discovered it. Right. But I don't think it was very well known. There was also a couple other people, I believe his name was Miguel. Okay. Miguel Castro, maybe. Sorry if I've got your name wrong. A couple other people discovered it over the years. But obviously they wanted to get it out of Cuba. And so to get it out, they hacked it up into pieces and shipped it to Europe. Right. Now. Why did they have to hack it into pieces? To get it out. Well, oh, because they couldn't like export it legally. Apparently. So. Let me show you a couple photos. If we find the car. So, that's it. Okay. So, it's sitting underneath a banana tree. Yeah. In various states of disrepair. Yeah, got it. And then it was shipped to Europe, restored, and this is what it looks like now. That's an impressive restoration. Holy. So that's the actual sort of color in that that it wore in the 50s when it was a race car. That was its original liver. See, here it is in the 50s. So it's wearing the same thing as it did in the 50s. So that is sort of the legend of the Cuban Gullwing. I believe it is now a car that's driven around in Europe. I don't think it's raced. I think it's in a private correction, correction, collection. A private correction. And I'm sure once again, it will never rot away ever again. Yeah. Now this one's an interesting one. Number, number, number three. So this is a story of a Ferrari Dino, a very, actually up until recently, Named Un- after Enzo's son? Is mm. that correct? I don't actually know. Oh, my gosh. If I'm right, this will be something that... Keep talking while I Google this. So this is a Ferrari Dino, a car in the 70s, which was actually underappreciated. So there's the car. What have you found? 
Aha, Alfredo Ferrari, nicknamed Alfredino or Dino, was an Italian automotive engineer and the first son of automaker Enzo Ferrari. And he, he was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, dystrophy and died aged 24. After his death, Ferrari named the car fitted with the engine that Alfredo was working on at the time of his death, Dino, in his honour. Yes, and this was a car that was very underappreciated and unloved for many, many years because it. it had a six-cylinder engine, not an eight-cylinder engine. So these cars were unloved and they were built in the 70s. So this owner, I believe, bought his in 76 for his wife. Okay. And they had it a week. That's a- an extensive amount of time for a vehicle. I know, right? So then what happened next is, well, they had it a week. They went to dinner yeah. one night, came out, and it was stolen. I thought you were going to say that they were too drunk and they left it behind and then it was gone in the morning. No. They came out and it was stolen. It had been stolen right. while they had dinner. Okay. So what did they do? Uh, well, then they filed for insurance. Mm-hmm. And I believe what they found out was it was actually insurance fraud. They had someone steal it for them. Oh, okay. From what I've heard. Because this car was lost for four years. Yeah. So it might have actually been bought in 74. It was either discovered in 78 or 1980. Somewhere around then. Yeah. And the way it was discovered is one of the weirdest discoveries ever. Okay. So these people bought a house... And you'd think that they maybe found this car abandoned in the garage. No. They found it in the master bedroom. No. There is actually a couple bedrooms. They found it in the bathroom. It wasn't in the house. It was in the stables. It was buried underground. I'm sorry, what? So they buried this car underground for four years. And so what they did... As in they bur- it took them four years to bury it or they buried it... No, they it buried it... four years later. They found it. So, and they actually tried to preserve it as best they could. So I believe it was actually buried in a swimming pool and then they covered, like filled it in. Okay, yep. And... So they dug the swimming pool, put the car in, concreted over no, it. No, it was a swimming pool and then they just filled it in. Oh, they put it in the swimming pool and then inst- instead of filling the swimming pool up with water, they yeah. slabbed it over. But Got it. No, not even slabbed. Just put dirt all over it. Oh. Filled it in with dirt. Like proper buried in the ground. Wow. And they tried to preserve it as best they could. They put something in the exhaust so that maggots couldn't get in the exor- in through the exhaust into the engine. So when you say they preserved it, who are you meaning preserved it? So the people. So they stole it? Well, it was an insurance fraud. So right. oh, from what I we see. know, the people, while they were having dinner, they got someone to steal it and then take it there, put it in the ground. Yeah, got it. And then collected the check because apparently he needed a check. Yes. From the insurance. Yes. So it was buried and they tried their best to keep it good they put something up the exhaust so maggots wouldn't get into the engine apparently they put towels in the interior to try and absorb any water 
that got in, they wrapped it up in like, I don't know what to call it, not plastic wrap, but like a wrapper pretty much. Some, some kind of wrap. And maybe Eminem. Maybe. Maybe it, Eminem did a wrap and it protected the car. But it was kept underground. New owners, I don't know how they found it. I okay. think there's a story about someone playing in the yard and then someone. Like, All right, we're going to dig out a pool. Oh, my God, it's a Ferrari Dino. Danny, <laughs> Danny Rick, come over and look at this. We found a Ferrari in the backyard. Yeah, but I don't know how it, how it went down. But right, wow, okay. And so they dug it up and a le- year later it was restored. And would you like to see some photos of it? Why not? So. Here are the photos of it when it was buried. Okay, yep. It's in the like ground. it was proper buried. Yeah. And you can see like the remains of the tarpay and everything. The tup- I was about- toupee? It the, had a toupee on it. Tarp? Yeah, the tarps and all that. And tarps and all doesn't that. Doesn't it like that's just in the ground somewhere? Yeah. Looks like it's in a grave. And yeah, it was it was in its grave. And this is it now. Oh wow, they did a very good job restoring it. Yes, yeah, so and that car is still around today. Its license plate is actually dug up. <laughs> Very good. And yeah, people do that. This is not on the list, but there was a Bugatti Veyron that drove into the ocean. It's actually owned by a YouTuber named Houston Croster nowadays. Uh huh. And apparently the license plate on it is Scuba. Ah, uh, very good. That's going to be coming to YouTube shortly, that documentary. But. Can you swim? Exactly, yeah. There's a video of that online, which is very funny. All right, so we're up to number number, number two, correct? Yes, so actually speaking of Bugattis, uh-huh. this is quite an interesting one. So this is a 1925 Bugatti Type 22. Okay. So 1925, and then in 1934-1935... At this point, it would have been probably mid to late 34. The owner of the car was a vintage race car guy because this, even though it was nine years old, it was an antique in these times. Right, okay. So, and he was quite a sort of Betty guy and he lost it in a poker game. Oh, okay. He was a Betty guy. I don't know how to describe it. He bet the car on the pokies. And he lost it in the poker game. Right, okay. So this guy who just won it, he lived in Switzerland. So he tried to get it, he put it on the boat and tried to get it put out there. Right, okay. But then he didn't actually have any of the paperwork or anything to get it in there. Right. So either, there are two stories apparently about this. I'm not sure how correct it was. He either got it in there and it was abandoned. Okay. Or the government seized it as soon as it came oh, in. Oh, right. I, I see. believe it was seized by the government from what I've heard. Okay. And they wanted it because there were apparently like massive stories about this going around. This is 1934. Massive yep. stories about this going around. They wanted it to be hid. So right. you're not going to believe this. 
I'm standing they, by. They put a chain on it and pushed it in the ocean. Like a gold chain? No, like a proper chain. Okay, yeah. Like a chain. Like an anchor and chain, I see. I Not see an anchor, just a chain. Right. And pushed it in the ocean. Okay. And what they were hoping for was it would just sort of sit at 35 feet and then they could pull it up a bit later. Bish bash bosh, it'd be fine. And I'm assuming that didn't happen? The chain was rusty. So it sank 171 feet underwater. I mean, that's that's a number of feet. And it sat there for... Do you want to guess how long it sat there for? This is 1934 we're talking about. Uh, it sat there for 100 years. It's still sitting there. It sat there for 75 years. Wow. So 2009 and... They brought it up. Yeah. And I'll get some photos for you because it's quite amazing to me. Wonderful. So there are no images of the actual, like, car itself before it sunk. Uh huh. But. So what is there pictures of? This is what a Bugatti Type 22 looks like. Yeah. It's very, it's classic old car. Yes. And now if I pull up a photo of this. Pacific one. Pacific? Pacific one. Well, it was found in the ocean, so, you know. Well, I mean, I there, wish I could hold that against him, ladies and gentlemen, but, you know, this you got a point. This is the photo of it coming up. Oh, my gosh, lovely listeners. It is covered in rust. Well, it's been sitting underwater for 75 years. I mean, look at that. Wow. It is destroyed. So, that's not... that's. That's not it, is it? I don't know. It just looks like another kind of wreck. No, that is it. Oh, my God. Wow. So that's it. There's another photo I found here somewhere of it as it came out the water. Oh, God, where is that photo? There it is. Wow. So that's it as it's come so through then, the water. So then what happened? So as you can tell, it's a bit too far gone to be restored. Yeah. So it was put in a museum. Okay. Very well-known museum. There she is. Yeah. And so apparently from what I've heard, one of the divers who was involved in it just before it came up sadly passed away. So it's been put there in honour of him. I believe there's a plaque there of him. What? It, uh, at the museum? Yes. Okay. Because it's been sort of... He was part of the project. Yeah, right. And he died, so they sort of... They commemorate him. Yeah. And isn't that just an amazing story? A Bugatti that fell in the water? I mean, not that fell in the water, was, was thrown in the water. Yeah, so it was either thrown in by the government or by himself. The yeah, story right. there's two different stories. Depends who you ask. Yes, so that's one car. And this is a sort of a different car, but it's now all, this is number one. This is number one. And it's a car that really nobody knows about. Okay. Let's, and it's let's listen. Let's 
hear about it, lovely listeners. And it's around the same time period as the Bugatti. Okay. So, so this car. Early in the 20th century. This car is a 1939 D-Type Auto Union. Okay. So the D-Type Auto Union is actually the first, technically the first Audi. So Audi wasn't a manufacturer, but it was sort of, it had the four Audi rings on it and it was sort of the start of Audi almost. Right. And so this was a race car that was almost commissioned by Hitler. It was commissioned, I know, right? It was commissioned, I think, by Hitler, I'm not quite sure, for speed records. Right, okay. And from what I've read, it does over 180 miles an hour in the Which 30s. is impressive for the 30s. So, and Hitler commissioned a few cars in this time, mainly the Beetle. Yeah. But this was a race car. And then the war properly kicked off. And all cars pretty much were being scrapped to make... To make ammunition and and military equipment. And the people that made it loved it so much that they hid it. They hid it from Hitler. Right. And do you want to guess where they hid it? Where? They hid it in a abandoned railway tunnel in East Germany. I believe it was East Germany. Okay. Uh, East Germany. Yeah. And it survived. But then, I don't know whether you know this, apparently East Germany went to Russia. Okay. Like East Germany then became like Russian land. That became a part of Russia. Right. And so the Russians then found it in this abandoned railway tunnel and it had been preserved. Right, okay. And then the Russians sort of re-engineered it and raced it for a little while. Wow, okay. And then it was broken up into pieces. Oh, did it need to eat like a pint of ice cream? Like was it, <laughs> it, it would have been quite emotional, I would assume. <laughs> but it was taken apart into many pieces. Okay. And many years later, an American chap wanted to find it. Yeah. And what – and he spoke fluent Russian. And so he managed to get all the pieces of the audio union back together. And yeah. it got put back together as it was intended. And then it was supposed to go through an auction. Yeah. And the price that – the estimated price was going to be 10 million US. Okay. From what I've heard. Yeah. But it never made it through auction. Okay. Because it was then put in the Audi Museum. Okay, yeah. In private hands. So someone privately owned it. Yeah. And put it in the Audi Museum. And apparently I think it sold to that person for like over $10 million. Wow. Because it's quite a crazy card. Would you like to see a photo of the D-Type Auto Union? Sure. Because I think this is an amazing piece of engineering. Um, not 
Hang on. Trying to find a photo of it. Oh, for God's sake. And he's getting ads. Pretty much, yeah. All right, you ready? Yep, go for it. This is a car from 1939. Oh, it looks very nice. So that. And it looks like a bullet. It looks very World War II. Yeah, well, that's what it was designed for. And. There was another great photo, top view photo of it. Yeah, right. Where's that photo? Where are you, photo? Um, I can't find that photo, but... How cool is that? Very cool. There's the engine of it. Actually, no, there's a top end video photo of it. There you are. Oh, very nice looking engine. So it, that is... Is that in front or behind the driver? Well, that's the driver's seat in front of it. See the steering wheel? It's behind. It's rear-engined. Rear well, it's a race car, and it was de yeah. designed for aerodynamics. And gotcha. I'm very glad that they preserved it. And you saw the Audi rings on it, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Because that was the sort of first thing that Audi ever did. Yeah, right. Well, there we go. Top top five barn finds, Cooper. Thank you very much for sharing. Yes. Some some new information with, and with the listeners. That's only scratching the surface. I mean, I'm sure there was the last ever Buick Grand National found in someone's bedroom. Right. Which that's a story for another day. If well, you'd like you to hear more barn find stories, comment below. There you go. All right, Cooper. It's time for one of our favourite segments. Tell me why Ain't nothing but a heartache Tell me why We're gonna talk about some stuff And not get copyrighted Every time I, well, that's become a thing We should really get rid of it But we're not going to at the minute Well, you know Anyway uh, Cooper, you have a tell me why question for me Yes and this is moving away from cars now. Right. So tell me why. Why do you think the Disney series, series, Loki and Miss Marvel are the best things that Marvel have done since Endgame? Ooh. Okay. So this is referencing last week in our filmic feelings, in our November wrap-up, we were talking about the Marvels. And we also talked about Loki season two because it's just ended. And I said that Loki and Miss Marvel are two of the best things that have come out of, I think specifically I was talking about Disney Plus series, but I do agree that they're probably two of the best things since Endgame. Now, now why do I think that? The only other two properties that I can think of off the top of my head that even compete with these are Guardians of the Galaxy and Shang-Chi. I knew you were going to say Shang-Chi, but... Guardians of the Galaxy 3 was quite surprising for me there. 
Really? I love Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I mean, I know that and I agree with you, but I didn't think it was one of your top things since Endgame. I mean, what else is there? Nothing. I mean, Spider-Man. Oh, that's true. No I way keep home. forgetting that No Way Home came out after Endgame. Well, yeah, that's true. The last two came out. The last two have come out. No Way Home is is definitely up there. I think that for me, No Way Home fits a bit of a different... Uh, I don't know. I think I'm going to specify down to like why I think that Loki and Miss Marvel are the best series because I think that's a more interesting conversation. Um because there is some good stuff happening in the movies and the movies don't have the same problems that the series have. And that's kind of where I really go into it because, you know, I've worked quite a bit in TV now. I'm The current show I'm doing is my one, two, three, fourth big TV series, you know, multi-part, streaming service, all that kind of thing. Um, and that's just the ones that I've worked extensively on. I've done additionals work on others. But the problem that Marvel have had for pretty much all of their series is, is that they don't hire showrunners. So let, let me go back to basics. So if you were making a TV show for pretty much any other network for, you know, let's say you were the person making Friends you know, one of the most popular shows in the world, and RIP to Matthew Perry, because I don't think we've said that since he tragically passed a few weeks ago. But you're making friends. In order to make that show, you've got to sit down with a team of writers who are led by a showrunner, who is the person who either conceptualized the idea for the show or at the very least took the initial idea and bought it off somebody else and is now helming that production. The showrunner leads their their writers and creates the show. But before they can create a whole season of the show, they have to create a pilot episode, which is the first episode. It's basically a proof of concept. It's basically, here's what the show is going to look like. Here's what the show is going to feel like. There are shows that never make it to pilot stage that literally are developed and then they go, never mind, we're killing it before it even gets to first episode. Is that the same with some movies as well? Yeah, a bit but like, but the movie process is different. Wonder Woman three, almost. Yeah, but that's different. TV works a lot differently to film in that way because movies generally have a very different budget allocation and have a very different expectation of budget compared to TV. So, for example, Friends. You had, I don't know who the showrunner of Friends is. I should probably look it up. I won't. But you have the showrunner of Friends who comes in and says, we're going to make this show. This is our vision for it. And Warner Brothers, who produced that show, go, all right, well, we like the sound of this. How about you bring a team of writers together and let's see what you can come up with. The team of writers come together. They write a bunch of different stuff. They write some pilot scripts. They submit those. You know, they write and they, they nominate one pilot script to go to the to the station and they create a Bible. Not a religious Bible, but... My goodness. Yeah, so they create basically what it is in live TV. Uh, my One of my lecturers at uni called it the If I'm Hit by a Bus book. And it's basically 
everything that you could possibly need to know about that show if the showrunner got hit by a bus. So this production Bible has all the characters, all of their storylines, all of their plot threads, even the ones that won't pay off for seasons down the line. And depending on the show, some shows will have, you know, seasons planned in massive amounts of advance. Some shows uh, don't feel that confident and so don't plan that. But regardless, we get to that point and then, uh, you know, you, you go to pilot and some shows never make it out of pilot. You know, some shows make their first pilot and then the studios go, you know what, no, we're cancelling this show. All of that is to say what Marvel does is Marvel comes in and goes, we want you to make a show about Moon Knight. We're going to give you this amount of money and go. And they make an entire season of a show that is not helmed by a showrunner. It's helmed by a film executive which is distinct because film executives aren't necessarily creatives. They are people with a vested interest in the business side of the company. So you've got film executives who are helming these shows, very loosely helming. And so really what it becomes is the vision of a director. Now, TV, unlike film, is not a director's medium. TV is a writer's medium, which is why the showrunner structure exists. But then what you have is in a lot of these shows, you don't have the same director. You have a series of different directors all across the season and it just dilutes the creative vision and the storytelling because you might have the same writers, but they're not all being funneled into the singular creative vision of the showrunner. Now, the difference with Miss Marvel... Well, let me, let me go back to the start. So Loki. Loki was the first one to come out. And Loki, the entire first season, was uh, directed by the same person. It was all directed by Kate Heron. So she served as an executive producer and directed the entire first season. Then for season two, she decided not to come back. Um, because she went and wanted to go off and do other things, which is great. It's fantastic for her. So then the next season, you had uh, how many different directors am I looking at here? One, two, three, four. You had four different directors, but two of them directed four of the episodes. So this directing team, Justin Benson and Aaron Scott Moorhead, who also did Moon Knight, they directed four of the episodes and then Dan DeLue and Kazra Farani did another two episodes. You also had in the second season Eric Martin who wrote on two episodes of the first season. Eric Martin, writ- Eric Martin wrote all six episodes of season two of Loki. So there, in various different ways, you have a central creative team. Now, when we go to Miss Marvel, I believe we have the same kind of thing. 
Yeah, so you have the first and last episode are both directed by Adil and Bilal. Then you have Charmaine Obaid Chinoy did two of them. And then the other one, the other two were directed by Mira Menon. So you have consistency in those directors. Can I just say, a minute ago, I thought you were about to say Billy Eilish. No. But that's why I think those series have succeeded where ones like Secret Invasion and She-Hulk and all of these series that have promise, that have great talent, that have great directors and writers working on them. But the problem is, is that when you're not using, there's a reason that structure exists of the, we start writing, we do a pilot, we continue because it helps you refine your creative vision. Cause if you're just going straight from, we order the series, we write the series, we make the series, we release the series you've got very little room for any movement and you have what the Secret Invasion had, which was extensive reshoots months before it came out that then need to be fixed and all of these kind of things. Anyway, it's a lot to go into. We'll chat about it another time. Thank you, lovely listeners, for listening to another episode of Speak Away, bruv. We will see you next week for Filmic Feelings, a Christmas special. Woo! And then the week after for another episode of the Speak Away, bruv show. Until then... Bye. Yeah.